This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how are you today this Tuesday afternoon? So good to have you along on the Country Hour today. And a lot of rain across the eastern states, plus some strong demand from feedlots and export markets are all driving a big turnaround in livestock prices. We'll take a good look at that a little later this hour. And then, of course, it is off to Mushay for the results of the sheep market. So we'll see the same sort of thing is happening locally. And at six past 12 here on the Country Hour, it's time to turn our attention to that ship that we've been hearing about that's just off the WA coast. And the Premier saying that the livestock export ship that was ordered to return to Australia due to those security issues in the Red Sea region is now just sitting off the coast, just off the coast of Fremantle, and expected to dock at the port of Fremantle tomorrow. Roger Cook says the plan at this stage is to partially destock the ship to ensure the highest animal welfare. He says the regulator, the Federal Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, in consultation with the exporter, is ultimately in charge of what happens to the livestock, but the state is willing to assist. Around 2,500 head of cattle, I think around 14,000 sheep. So it's a, it's a big, big ship. Um, and obviously presents a real uh, challenge for the Commonwealth Government in relation to how they manage this export product in this context. We, we, stand, we stand ready to assist the Commonwealth in relation to this issue. My understanding is they want to get a range of the, those um, animals off the ship to at least get the stock rates right down. But we'll need to quarantine those animals because obviously they're coming from overseas, so there are biosecurity uh, measures in place to make sure that they don't present with any diseases. My understanding is that the welfare of the animals is still fairly um, high, uh, but obviously they've been at sea now for, for quite a few days and we stand ready to help the Commonwealth resolve that issue. So it would be your preference that they are able to, to come off for a bit? Well, we don't have I mean, a would it be cruel to keep them on there? Look, my understanding is the welfare of the animals is still fairly high, uh, but um, obviously there's a lot of them on that ship in fairly tight quarters. So I think the initial impetus or focus for the Commonwealth is to destock the ship, at least to get those numbers down so that they can look after the welfare of those animals much better. What do you mean destock? Are you saying so some come off and some stay on? That's my understanding is their initial aim is to at least get some off so that they can look after the welfare of those animals. So we are working with the Commonwealth at the moment around identifying quarantine stations where those animals can go to. Obviously there's a lot of them and uh, and it it presents... um, you know, a real challenge, but we're, we're there to help out because we want to look after the welfare of those animals as well. You expect that would happen today? Look, my understanding is it's more likely they'll dock tomorrow. Uh, we're just trying to, to wait for traffic to clear at Fremantle in order for that to happen. Uh, but again, we are in the hands of the Commonwealth on this, but we stand ready to assist them. And then what would happen? The expectation is what? Then they, at some point they go back on and go back to Jordan? I mean, if there were safety issues a few weeks ago those safety issues won't go away. So what's going to happen? Well, well, I think the challenge that they have in this particular situation is that they, they're taking ships, they're disembarking, you know, with, with livestock on board over long, long uh, distances, taking some time in a very unstable destination. 
So we don't know what the geopolitical or the other circ- or the safety s- situation at the at the foreign ports is going to be like because it can be upwards of seven days before they can get there in a very rapidly changing situation. So I think those long haul destinations presents a real challenge in the short term, particularly given the um, the situation we see emerging in the Middle East. Premier Roger Cook with Nadia Mitsopoulos, nine past 12. The Labor Party's Josh Wilson is the federal member for Fremantle. Here's a little of what he had to say this morning on the live export ship that's coming into the port. Once again, unfortunately, we have a ship with thousands of sheep suffering intolerable heat and confinement as a result of the dangerous live sheep trade. We should have learned by now. Uh, that the live sheep trade involves unacceptable risks to animal welfare and sheep can't be long-distance freight to one of the hottest and most unstable parts uh, of the world. Do you agree, disagree with the Federal Member for Fremantle, Josh Wilson? What do you think should happen with the sheep and the cattle on board this ship. Let me know this afternoon. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Text through. Let me know your thoughts. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Well, the animal export industry regulator is yet to make a final decision on the future of the livestock on board the MV Bahija. As you heard yesterday, President of the WA Farmers Livestock Section, Jeff Pearson, believes the only option is to re-export this shipment. The biosecurity risks of, of offloading these livestock coming out of foreign waters is not an option when we have the option of re-exporting these li- this livestock immediately. What are those risks associated with offloading the sheep and cattle well, on this ship? Well, you have to go through the, the whole logistical uh, nightmare, if you want to call it that, of having to quarantine um, these livestock from anything else. Um, and what it does is it, it basically locks up anything that can be moved from any of these properties for a very long time. Now, I don't know any any business that wants to do that. Um, when we have the other options of re-exporting, uh, we don't want to go down the line of, of having to you know, potentially threaten this um, uh, state with a biosecurity risk of offloading foreign animals. Well, State Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis rejects the idea that this journey will continue without any animals being offloaded. In fact, the minister is calling on the livestock industry to step up and help find a suitable quarantine location for the livestock that will need to come off this ship. She says the first thing that needs to happen is for a Commonwealth vet to board the ship and inspect the livestock. I've been informed that that reports from the ship is that the animals are all in excellent condition. But a Commonwealth vet does need to board the ship before approval can be given for the ship to restart its journey and to, to get those animals to Israel, which is the final destination. The ship was offered the opportunity to berth this afternoon, is my understanding. Um, they gave up that, that spot. I'm assuming that's because of logistics. We know that there is a live export ship due to go out this afternoon. Um, So there will be obviously uh, livestock transport vehicles in the area. The Commonwealth is likely to ask for the the stocking levels on the ship to reduce. So the the Commonwealth may well request that a few hundred of those animals come off the ship, mainly to reduce stocking density. Uh, If that happens, then those animals, the exporter needs to find somewhere for those animals to go in a quarantine safe facility. I understand it's mostly a Commonwealth responsibility, but... They, they've known the ship's been returning for a week or more. I mean, why weren't things in place? Why wasn't the Commonwealth vet ready to go on board? 
is he ready to go on board? So the Commonwealth is ready to go on board. Um, they're working with the, the exporters. So industry um, industry has made it very clear their preference would be not to remove any animals and to just uh, restock with feed and water. I understand there's at least five days feed and water available for those animals. Industry uh, participants, we've been working at a state level and a Commonwealth level with um, you know industry organisations and the exporters um, you know since since the ship was ordered back. We have Commonwealth officers, I understand, ready to board the ship. Uh, the expectation was that those Commonwealth officers uh, would be able to board the ship once it came into dock, which was, was planned for this afternoon. Uh, the exporters have, have given up that position. Uh, as I said, that may be a logistics. Obviously, moving hundreds of uh, cattle and sheep requires you know, a large number of truck movements. Um, and so the Commonwealth and the exporters are working through that. Do you know if the Commonwealth um opposes the re-exporting of those sheep that they, 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 and, and cattle, that most of them don't get off and it just sails away? Uh, look, my understanding is the Commonwealth is supportive of those animals. Uh, most of those animals are basically restarting their journey, uh, providing they can inspect the animals, they can ensure welfare. The Commonwealth need to give approval for, for that, that journey to happen, and my understanding is the Commonwealth are, are supportive of that once they've gone on board, and as I said, they may request a reduce in the number of animals on board, just mindful that, that a lot of those animals have been on that ship obviously for a few weeks now. What would you say to those people concerned about the welfare of the animals that might say that this is an indication that we should do away with live export? Look, uh, this is a really emotive issue. Live export is an incredibly emotive issue and I know that, that seeing animals on a ship uh, in the port um, is, is not pleasant for a lot of people. Um, this is um, an industry that takes animal welfare very seriously. This is a West Australian exporter who values you know, animal welfare highly. Um, I just want to make sure that, that obviously the Commonwealth can get a vet on board as soon as possible. As a state government, we said we'll facilitate that any way we can. We're happy to assist where we can. Um, as I said, I know it's highly emotive. One of the challenges with these very long journeys, um, you know, going, going to the other side of the world virtually, is that when there's political unrest, it's, it's uh, you know, a long way back, and that's what's happened. I mean, most of our cattle from Northern Australia goes into Asian markets, they're shorter journeys. Um, we can actually you know, have, have line of sight of what's happening politically. But when we've got these long journeys, obviously, you know, geopolitical forces come into play. Minister, does WA have appropriate quarantine facilities to host a few hundred animals if they are taken off the ship? So I just want to make it really clear. At this stage, there is no major biosecurity risk. This is a precaution. These animals have not disembarked on any foreign ports. Uh, any risk might be a, a small risk from perhaps an airborne mosquito-borne virus such as lumpy skin disease. So West Australia has a number of feedlots, holding pens, etc., that are export approved, that are quarantine approved. Um, I'm really asking industry to step up. Um, you know, these industry associations, we've been working with them a long time, um, you know, for a number of weeks. They need to step up and actually help this exporter to find a suitable location. I think saying that, well, you know, we just want the journey to continue without any animals coming off is not an option if the Commonwealth uh, decide that some animals need to leave the ship. So I'm really asking industry players to step up and uh, find suitable locations. Um, obviously, if we're dealing with, a, you know, my understanding is it may only be a few hundred animals that need to come off. It's not a huge number. We're certainly not talking about removing all 14,000 sheep and, and 2,500 head of cattle. Uh, the expectation is uh, that those animals are quite comfortable, they're in good condition and they will, they will restart their journey. So I guess is there any um, idea about maybe processing all of these animals on shore or does that seem out of the question at this point? 
Oh, look, I mean, absolutely. Those, if, if a few hundred sheep come off and are held, then they can absolutely go for domestic processing. Uh, my understanding is the cattle are feeder cattle, which means they're not ready for processing yet. They would normally go into a feedlot situation. So let's be clear, these animals are essentially in a feedlot environment on a ship. Uh, when they come off, they will go into a feedlot environment on shore. The Commonwealth, the Commonwealth will make a decision about if an, any animals are to come off the ship. That, that's up to the Commonwealth vet and the, the Commonwealth officials. Um, that, that is a decision that's made independent of government. Um, if those animals come off, then uh, they may well come off for a spell and then be re-exported, or they may be processed domestically. Um, obviously, you know, the, the exporter owns these animals. It's up to them to decide uh, what happens to them after, after that. State Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis talking to reporters, I think, outside Parliament House just a short time ago. Uh, we did ask her to come on to the Country Hour and talk directly to you this afternoon. Um, she wasn't prepared to do that. Uh, the quality, the sound quality would have been a lot better if that had been the case, but unfortunately not this time. What do you make of the ministers pointing to industry too to really step in and help find a suitable quarantine location for the livestock that she believes will need to come off this ship? Not all of them, but maybe a few hundred or so. Would you be prepared to have them at your place? Let me know, 0448 922 On the text, John says, Remember passengers on cruise ships who are unable to disembark because of the potential of spreading COVID? It's the same for the stock on board. Those who say it's cruel to stay on board have no idea of the devastating effects if biosecurity is breached. I have friends in England whose dairy herd was wiped out by foot and mouth disease. But here in Australia, ignorance breeds complacency. Read the risk of unloading. Thank you, John. Michaelia says the sheep on the ship are not overcrowded. There is no overheating. The Premier and the member for Fremantle are either clueless or politically driven and therefore keen to mislead people. Time for facts, not feelings. Josh Wilson forgets WA Labor said they support the trade. And then this. Why not put the sheep at Government House? Plenty of green grass there. Text three. Let me know what you're thinking. 0448 922 604 19 past 12. You're with Belinda Baraschetti for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. We'll get to the news headlines at half past 12 and check weather conditions right around Western Australia. Speaking of sheep, off to Mushay just before the news at one and Terry Birkin will go through the yarding and the prices for you. And just stepping over to the east too to take a look at some of the uh, cattle markets in particular over there. The prices are on their way up and quite a few happy producers to see prices heading in that direction. That's later in the hour, 20 past 12. First up, Australia's agricultural industry has a lot to gain from gradually switching to electrical forms of power. The mining industry is probably further down the track on moving away from diesel fuel, but the CSIRO's Dr Adam Best says the farming sector is starting to do the same. There's actually companies who are actively pursuing electrification of farming equipment uh, at the moment. So looking to generate new technologies that have uh, lower energy footprints, uh, lower energy demands in order to be able to make farming far, far more sustainable. And I think there's much learning that can be taken from the mining industry that's uh, currently making that transition away from uh, diesel for all their large uh, fleet towards electrification in terms of designing new battery sets, charging infrastructure and the like. 
So this isn't just the big machines like the headers and the tractors. This is also uh, your daily drive and your farm vehicles, your your four-wheel drives and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a couple of Australian companies that are really active in this area doing those conversions of equivalents of Toyota Land Cruisers uh, to be able to be electric to work both in above-ground and underground mining circumstances in order to you know, make the air and the environment far cleaner for, for those who work in those situations, but also to reduce their energy demand and energy footprint. The average person who looks to an electric vehicle, they often hear stories about not enough infrastructure being put in place to drive from A to B, particularly in the country. Are there support infrastructure or or is that support infrastructure for the agricultural sector? Is that being developed uh, in tandem with these new technologies, so not just the vehicles? I think with particularly if we talk about vehicle conversions to electrification, then farmers and other users of electric vehicles can actually take advantage of some of the new technologies that are already available in terms of charging systems and Australia is actually a world leader in some of that technology development so farmers can actually access level one or level two charges in their own homes or in their own farm shared areas particularly where they may be using solar off their roof they can use that then to charge their uh, their vehicle, particularly if they have uh, battery, additional battery storage that can then be used to augment the vehicle charging. So all the types of technologies that exist today for, for commercial, industrial use can easily be adapted directly to the farming context. And for agricultural producers, are there particular cons that you can point to? I mean, you, you mentioned the mining industry a minute ago. What are the, the pros for a, a producer who looks to electrify their fleet or their operation? Yeah, so obviously the size and scope of some of the the farmlands that we have today are obviously going to be quite painful in terms of battery size. So being able to efficiently and effectively charge those batteries up in a in a in a timely fashion in order to be able to continue to work will be a, a challenge. And I think some of the learning that will come through in the years ahead from the mining industry could well and truly be adopted uh, back into the farming industry. So while you may not be able to do a direct electrification of headers in in huge wheat farm areas, uh, there may be other parts of the farming environment that could be uh, converted. So, for instance, um, an Australian company has already done helped with dairy farmers to move to uh, electrified dairy farming in order to, to reduce their requirement for both grid power and diesel uh, for milking cows. So there is absolutely opportunities to do this. Not everything will be able to be done straight away, but some of the technology that comes through from other areas will be very quickly adapted back into large-scale farming. On the cost side of things, diesel is one of those uh, resources that are really skyrocketing lately. Mm. Uh, Is there a benefit financially uh, obviously, the the cost to set up an electrification network within your own farm will be you know, steep to begin with. But long term, has there been any cost benefit analysis done to see whether one is better than the other? Yes, I've seen a couple of case studies where, particularly in the dairy farming case, that those dairy farmers where they already have solar panels on their farm sheds and then using that energy to be stored has actually been of net. Uh, energy benefit but also financially extremely beneficial as power prices and diesel prices as you point out continue to increase having your own energy to be able to generate during the day and store store as well for use later will be of immense benefit to offset those costs. The CSIRO's principal research scientist Dr Adam Best talking to Andrew Chounding about the electrification of the agricultural sector. 24 past 12. Well, if there's all this hype about electrification, you'd think miners chasing critical minerals needed for batteries would be making a fortune right now. 
The world's biggest lithium mine is at Greenbushes in the state's southwest. Talison Lithium owns it and the company has just announced it's marginally reducing its mining activity over the next five months. Mining analyst Tim Treadgold says there are short-term supply and demand issues behind that, which he thinks could take a few years to be resolved. I mean, this happens all the time. Uh, when a new industry comes along, there's always euphoria and excitement and wonderful projections and then uh, fairly quickly reality dawns that the projections were uh, through rose-coloured glasses. You've seen it repeatedly with other commodities. Uh, so this was always going to play out this way. Why has this happened? It's very simple. Uh, the supply of lithium is dramatically exceeding demand. Battery makers have been buying lots of lithium. Uh, they have not been able to get rid of all the batteries they've made. And then if you chase this right up the food chain, you come to a very concerning fact. Electric vehicle sales are nowhere near what people had forecast. People are simply not buying them. I mean, in Western Australia, you're, you would still be a very brave person to own an EV in country WA. Yeah, there, there are a lot of issues there that are damaging the EV industry, <clears throat> which flow up or down the food chain, depending on which way you want to go. And it eventually hits the miners. These things will sort themselves out, but they will take years, not months. How do you predict further down the track? What's that going to look like for a commodity like lithium? When you see the biggest producer in the world, which is Greenbushes, make a decision like cutting back on output, you've got to say that everybody else of a lesser degree is in deep trouble. So Greenbushes is the biggest and best lithium mine in the world. So if it's cutting production, it's still very profitable, but it is acknowledging that things are tough. So if it's tough at the top, it must be diabolical at the bottom. And that's why you're seeing companies like Core Lithium sort of close the gates up at its Northern Territory operation. And you get, you're going to see other small high-cost operations close the gates until things get better. When will they get better? Uh, Goldman Sachs, they can't see a turn coming until 20 six basically so we're going to be heading down all this year might see something good towards the end of next year but you won't get prices back to something which the miners want until 2026 so that's two a two-year down cycle which if you look back is exactly what happened in 2018 we did this we've been down this road once before we weren't as heavily committed to lithium before but we are heavily committed to lithium now including australian governments got very excited about it and said yippee beans, we're going to make batteries. Well, there's a lot riding on this, including uh, for governments. In the statement from IGO, they said that there's going to be a marginal reduction. What does that actually look like? Is, is that something that people should be worried about? They're cutting production by about 7%, um, which is yeah, not a lot, it's, but it's recognition of market conditions. So, yeah, it's not the end of the world, but it's, it's a cut nevertheless. On a positive note, you are seeing heavy-duty investors continue to do deals, pour money into lithium. I mean, we've got the example of Gina Reinhardt is continuing to buy lithium assets. She's got her foot on the Liontown mine at the um, Kathleen Valley. She's now got her foot on the Andover project up in the Pilbara with her Chilean partner, SQM. So... Things are still happening, deals are still being done, but people are doing it with an eye on the long term. And as we discussed earlier, the long term 
is somewhere in three years' time, two to three years' time. So these investments are being made, the deals are being done, but they're not being done for tomorrow. They're being done for three years' time. Mining analyst Tim Treadgold with Kate Forrester and Talison Lithium is saying it's well positioned to navigate current market fluctuations and at this stage they've got no plans to alter their workforce. This on the text from Tyson who says, What a load of BS. The mining industry can afford to throw money around at crap like electric vehicles which are not saving the environment whatsoever, all just to please the people. Thank you, Tyson. 29 past 12. Tabarak al in the studio with the news headlines. Hello. In the headlines, WA Premier Roger Cook says his government is working with the Commonwealth to make arrangements for thousands of Australian sheep and cattle on a ship off the WA coast. The MV Bahija was ordered to turn back from its voyage to the Middle East earlier this month. The vessel arrived back in WA yesterday but remains anchored off Fremantle while the federal government and export company agree on what to do with the animals. And you've just had Tim Treadgold on and I have him in the headlines as well. He says it could be two to three years before lithium prices start to bounce back as another major industry player rolls back operations. IGO, which co-owns a majority stake in the Greenbushes mine in the southwest, says it expects production to be reduced over the next five months. Tim Treadgold says it's the inevitable result of the weaker than expected uptake of electric vehicles. And Australian Border Force has seized more than $4.5 million worth of vaping products in South Australia. It's the largest bust since the new national vaping Bans took effect in January. The contraband goods are reported to have been imported from China. I'll have more news at one. Thank you, Tabarak. Appreciate that. It is half past 12 here on the Country Hour. And most of this hour, just talking about the latest on that live shipment of well, mainly sheep and some cattle that's just sitting off the coast of Western Australia, just outside the port of Fremantle, which is where it's meant to dock sometime tomorrow, according to the Premier, uh, Roger Cook. We're just waiting for the regulator, the Federal Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, in consultation with the exporter, to make a, a final decision about what happens to the livestock. But from what you've heard today from the Premier and also the Agriculture Minister, State Agriculture Minister, it looks like some of the livestock on board that ship will be offloaded and now looking for a place to put some of those sheep and cattle into a quarantine sort of facility or a holding paddock uh, for the time being. But that's all probably being worked out in the background as I speak to you this afternoon. On the text, Ryan in Southern Cross says, This is nothing more than politics by Murray Watt and the Labor Party, with pressure mounting on them to release the report on the phase-out of the live sheep trade by sea. Why has no other ship exporting or importing goods been stalled? Uh, This too. So these armchair expert animal welfare wannabes want to offload the stock and put them on a truck with no water and food to be transported for two hours plus on a 40 degree day, as opposed to leave them on a ship where they have shade, water and feed. It's a no brainer. And this from Stuart. There's no way those sheep could be unloaded from this ship. Offloading animals that have been on a foreign-owned ship, which could harbour any number of viruses, maybe mosquito-borne, is a threat to Australia. This is how COVID got into Australia. We cannot trust the Australian Federal Government on this, says Stuart. And uh, Colin also phoned in to express the same opinion. 28 to 1. Taking a good look at... Cattle markets and cattle prices shortly uh, on the east coast and also here in Western Australia. Um, ending up the hour at Mushay today with a look at the yarding and the prices 
at the sheep market with Terry Birkin. Right now, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Catherine Shelfout with you this afternoon. Catherine, we'll start in the north of the state. How's it looking across northern and eastern parts this afternoon and up until the weekend? Good afternoon, Belinda. Uh, look, it's uh, reasonably quiet at the moment, given we had a fair bit of rain last week. Uh, at the moment, uh, not a lot of cloud even over the state, but we do expect to see um, just sort of the usual thunderstorm activity um, over the north uh, today through the Kimberley, Pilbara and North Interior. But basically, yeah, there's a trough lying through inland parts of the Kimberley and North Interior, and that extends across to the west Pilbara. Pretty light winds um, close to the trough there, but we will see some southeasterly surges pushing through the interior and the east Pilbara over the next couple of days. So that's bringing um, some fairly warm um, temperatures continuing there through the West Pilbara. So mid to high 40s um, from tomorrow right through till Saturday. Saturday looks like uh, it will be the warmest day there, uh, sort of probably hottest through the western Gascoyne and the western Pilbara which tends to be the the hot spot there um, so we do have a heat wave warning out for that and we will see shower and thunderstorm activity continuing sort of on and north of that trough so um, becoming quite coastal over the next few days so uh, through most of the Kimberley um, just sort of far western parts of the interior and through the Pilbara uh, tomorrow Thursday and Friday and then contracting uh, to northern and central parts of the Kimberley on Saturday. And we've got some hot conditions in parts of the Southwest Land Division this week too. What can you see? Yeah, that's right. So the heatwave uh, warning does extend right down to the southwest corner. So right now we've got a ridge that's lying south of WA and a trough near the west coast, the infamous west coast trough. So we'll see um, uh, the high a high move into the bight uh, tomorrow and that west coast trough persisting, sitting pretty close uh, to the coast for the next couple of days and just moving very slightly inland each afternoon. So uh, for the southwest land division, we'll see northeasterly winds um, sort of fairly moderate through most of the um, the Southwest Land Division, but a little bit fresher uh, through northern parts, and very dry conditions and quite hot. So temperatures uh, above 40 degrees um, through the Great Southern, the Central Wheat Belt, uh, and even inland parts of the South Coastal District tomorrow, and up into the mid 40s through the Central West. And on Thursday, um, a degree or two hotter again, and those uh, higher than 40 degree temperatures extending to inland parts of the Southwest District as well. So places like uh, Bridgetown and Manjimup. So just those northeasterlies pushing the hot temperatures right down to the southwest corner there. Uh, on Friday, things will move a little further east. So we'll see the high sort of moving um, further east, uh, south of South Australia. And the West Coast trough uh, moves east with it as well. So temperatures very close to the West Coast and in that southwest uh, district will be a little bit cooler, but still sitting around 42 degrees through the Wheat Belt, Great Southern and up around 45 through the Central West. Even Esperance very hot on Friday, around 38 degrees, uh, but pretty light winds throughout. And finally on Saturday we see uh, a change. So we do see a, a very weak cold front or maybe just a trough um, coming in and uh, a strong ridge pushing in behind that. So we'll get a good southwesterly surge uh, that moves through southern and western parts of the southwest land division. We'll see temperatures south of about Mandurah to Narragin dropping down below 30 degrees uh, and the northeastern parts of the southwest land division will see that cool change coming through on Sunday. And then the no morning... precipitation. Oh, 
sorry. Um, yeah, no, no thunderstorms expected with this trough uh, and just maybe some light showers along the south coast on Saturday. And then the warnings... Yes, so obviously the heat wave warning, severe to extreme heat wave extending from the West Pilbara down to that southwest corner. Uh, we have extreme fire danger for a number of districts currently the Swan Inland South District, Brockman, Blackwood, and Southern Forests. A strong wind warning for the Geraldton Coast and a minor flood watch uh, for the Fitzroy River, just expecting to see it peak uh, at Willare uh, maybe today or tomorrow, and then uh, that flood warning will go. Catherine, thank you so much. Appreciate that. 23 to 1 and Richard Hudson in the studio now. Not much rain to report, Richard? No, hardly anything at all. In fact, the most was two mils at El Questro in the Kimberley and nowhere else actually recorded anything, never mind anything worth mentioning. Uh, There are some fires burning throughout Western Australia at the moment. Some are at an advice level and some of those are in the more southern parts of the state. So due to the risk of fires, a total fire ban has been issued today for some shires in the southwest and the lower southwest regions. So that's for Dardanup, Harvey, Murray, Waruna, Bridgetown, Greenbushes, Donnybrook, Bailing Up, Manjimup and Nanup. So if you're in any of those shires, you can't light a fire, do anything that could start a fire, can't carry out any activity at all. So no cooking, camping, hot work, grinding, welding, gas cutting, no fun on off-road vehicles or anything like that. And if you need any information, if you missed which shires have a total fire ban in place and you did want to carry out some of those activities, just do a search for emergency in WA and it'll have all the details on there. That'll also give you the updates on those fires because the ones that are at an advice level are still of a concern. Uh, So you'll be able to read up all the details on there. But, um, hey, Bell, as you heard yesterday, as you mentioned, some stations in Western Australia's northern goldfields and Nullarbor regions have certainly had some big and welcome rain in the last week. But, as is usually the case, some pastoralists didn't actually get the rain they wanted and needed. Annabelle Coppin is at Yarry Station in the Pilbara, and says they haven't had much rain since last April, so their country could have really done with a good drink. Bit of disappointment, of course, when the predictions look good and nothing comes. Um, obviously, there's some good rain for some people further southeast of us, which is good. We're just hoping something's going to come soon. We do have a river from that rain, so the the Degray River is it looked like quite a big river, and it's gone over the banks. It's gone back down now. That was from that rain, which is, you know, you know that's a really positive to have water in the river. But the, the real rain that brings the relief and, and really sets you up for the season hasn't come as yet. You mentioned the degray obviously flowing fairly strong due to that tropical low. Um, what sort of impact does that have for you? Why is that a good thing? Look, it's always great to see fresh water in a river. Um, it's good for the cattle that are on the river to have some fresh water. Also, the water went over the banks just for a night and went back down so it's like a natural sort of flood irrigation system so along the banks there there will actually be some green tucker that comes up on there so that's a bonus as well have you had any sort of smaller patchier falls um, in the recent weeks or months some storms here and there isolated but where they've fallen they've been quite decent no real major creek runners or anything like that but enough to spread the cattle and just give little strips of green here and there that is a huge help until hopefully the general rain comes. So, you know, we're grateful for that. 
but obviously you need more than that to to call it a an average season at least obviously you and other pastoralists in the Pilbara Gascoigne have been dealing with an extended dry period what does that mean for you specifically and and what you do what has the impact been we wouldn't call it an extended dry here because we had rain in April last year some people have done it a lot harder than us so far however it doesn't really matter what sort of season you have when it comes to January February you are looking for rain again to to make sure that you can set yourself up for the year if you don't get a good general rain every year well you know you're going in for some pain which does happen in the Pilbara um, you know it did happen to people in the Pilbara last year we got the rain we copped the, a caning from the cyclone but at least we got some rain from it but yeah January is when we generally have our good opening rains and then February is our biggest rain month if we haven't had rain by mid-February there's sort of 50 50 chance that we're not going to get rain so we still have a bit of time up our sleeve. I suppose the concerning bit is that the Kimberleys really haven't had their big rain yet as a whole, and it really generally has to rain there properly before it comes to us. As you say, the Pilbara does go through dry spells, and it is dry every year. How do you sort of prepare for February if if that rain doesn't come? What will change for you? What do you need to do? Uh, look, we've got a drill rig here at the moment. We're putting in a few extra bores, we've got some extra country around that that has seed, which we always like to have up our sleeve, and and we'll have those bores ready and ready to develop. That sort of stuff will help. But really, what it means is you're going to lose a lot of money that year, and it's going to be a tough year. You're definitely not going to make any money. You're going to lose a lot of money, and there's going to be you know, a lot of light cattle sold. Do you have you made any changes to the level of livestock yet, or again, are you waiting till February? No, we're fine until February. Some other places might be going into their second or third dry season now, and that that will be tough for them. Annabelle Copping speaking to Tom Robinson. And Annabelle Coppin runs Yarry Station, so about 170 kilometres southeast of Port Hedland in the Pilbara. And Annabelle was mentioning the De Grey River is flowing nicely. It's not the only one. The Fortescue River broke its banks near Newman, peaking at 5.63, no, 5.36 metres on Thursday morning. And that's the highest level since records began in 1980. And also in the northwest, the Victoria Highway is still closed in both directions at the Northern Territory Western Australian border due to the flooding. 17 to 1. Well, before the news at 1, you'll get the yarding and the prices from today's Mouche sheep market. You'll also head off to the Wagga Wagga cattle market where producers are pretty happy with the prices they're taking home compared to just a few months ago. And cattle prices were also up for discussion on the ABC's morning show today when cattle producer Daniel called Talkback to speak to the Premier. Hey, mate. What, what, what do you think Australian farmers in WA are getting per kilo for their beef right now? Oh, look, Daniel, I don't know the number off the top of my head. I do know that that um, prices for, for a lot of meat products have been suppressed, particularly over the last 12 months. Those who know more about it than me will tell uh, tell me that um, that you could expect well, I, I could short, tell you. short-term rises in sheep in sheep prices, uh, but we continue to see very competitive prices for all our agricultural products. So I'll tell you about competitive. Coles are selling it for $80 a kilo, and they're paying us $1.70. 
book about climate catastrophe crisis. What do you think that's from? Well, as you know, Daniel, uh, the Commonwealth Government's doing an investigation into potential price manipulation by the, by the big re- uh, supermarkets. I wholly support that. I think there is a significant disconnect between what our farmers are getting at the farm gate for their products and what they're being sold to the public through our supermarkets. I'm really looking forward to that, digging in and finding out what's going wrong as far as that relationship's concerned. What else are you wanting the You're Premier to, to do, Daniel? Export. What are you talking about? What are you wanting the Premier to do, Daniel? Uh, how about not ban live export and screw our farmers even more, which he's trying to? Uh, Daniel, we have actually been supporting the farmers in relation to live live animal exports. We made a submission to the Commonwealth in terms of their inquiry into this. Uh, it will have uh, about $129 million impact on our industry, the loss of around 400 jobs. Ideally, I'd love to see meat processed in Western Australia. That means more Western Australian jobs. It means better, better uh, care for those animals. But but the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of our farmers rely upon an ecosystem which involves live animal exports. So if the Commonwealth wants to move away from that, they have to be able to provide a solution to the farmers about how that will impact on their industry. Well, we're talking about just a ban on live sheep, not cattle, unless I've missed something. Oh, well, indeed. And, and, and obviously, particularly up in the northwest, a lot of our cattle farmers rely upon that short haul to Indonesia and to, and to Vietnam as part of their export, um, export product arrangements. So it's a complex industry. And one of the disappointments, perhaps, is that people have brought short, uh, uh, simplistic uh, slogans to this debate, whereas it actually requires deep analysis. Is there anything to indicate to you that the federal government might go back on that promise? I haven't, I haven't heard anything from the Commonwealth in relation to this matter of late. We're f- solely focused on the welfare of the, the animals on that particular ship that are off, it's off the coast at the moment, and we stand ready to assist the Commonwealth to protect the welfare of those animals. That's the Premier, Roger Cook, taking a talkback call from cattle producer Daniel on Nadia Mitsopoulos' morning show today. It's 13 to 1 here on the Country Hour and a lot of rain across the eastern states plus some strong demand from feedlots and export markets are all driving a big turnaround in livestock prices. So Daniel's going to be pretty happy to hear that news this afternoon. There was a big slump in prices late last year as farmers offloaded stock due to a forecast for a hot, dry summer. But that's now given way to a 50% price rise in some markets. Matt Dalgleish is the director of Episode3.net and says sentiment does seem to have turned. Yeah, absolutely. I think we started to say, I mean, the, obviously the, the troughs in cattle and sheep markets were towards the last quarter of last year when we were down at those very you know, extreme lows. I think for, for lambs it was around September and I think for cattle it was October we saw the lows in the market. We did start to see a bit of an increase in pricing, like you said, through December before the Christmas New Year break, which kind of you know indicated we might be in for a good solid start. And since the open in January, by about mid-January, I think we've seen cattle prices, so the heavy steers, up about 45% from the lows of the previous year. And... Um, the lamb sides even had a really strong turnaround. I think they're up about 85% from, from that low saw in September. So, um, yeah, really strong result for the, for the lamb side particularly. And is it sort of grass and rain driven or something else? Yeah, look, that's certainly helped. Um, the, that's, the, the, the rainfall has given confidence back into the market. I think 
you know, in the lead up to the end of the year or, or, or coming towards that final quarter of last year, there was a pretty dire uh, bureau forecast for, for coming into summer and, and certainly on the East Coast it looked pretty pretty bad scenario and that didn't well it was hot wasn't it it was hot and dry in november it was yeah it was it was and it was looking pretty bad there and obviously we had those tropical events that pushed a lot of rain through we've had two now the second one just come through recently up at the top end there so you know that's kind of allowed for um you know rain and in some areas maybe too much rain really but you know that's that's been enough to bring that confidence back into the market so you know we did see at the start of 2024 we had those weaner sales in the south and that was heavily uh, attended by buyers in northern New South Wales and in southern Queensland um, looking for some good quality wiener cattle to bring back. So that, that kind of started the ball rolling. And, and then once the, the normal sale yards have opened up through the middle of January, that's kind of continued on with that confidence and the price recovery has been really you know, solid. There's also talk that the feedlotters are particularly accurate, uh, uh, particularly active, and um, you're there outbidding everyone, and um, uh, because they can't, uh, maybe not, can't source it from Queensland where they normally do. Yeah, that's right. They've, they've kind of returned. I think with the with the recovery in that heavy steer, um, that's kind of and, and a little bit of softening in, in feed grain pricing. Not not a, not an extreme softening, but a little bit of a softening has seen. I think their margins improve a bit, so that's given them a bit of a boost too. And what about in terms of processing? Because we've heard about, you know, exports could be impacted by the shipping and the Red Sea issue. But uh, that's, the, you know, the, there's demand still there. They're still buying too at the sale yards. Yeah, exports have been quite strong um, towards the end of last year. We had the strongest uh, annual level on record for mutton exports and for lamb exports out of Australia. And the beef exports have been like t- slowly ticking along. So the last quarter we had a really strong increase of demand particularly out of the US and it looks like Japan might have turned the corner as well it might be early days yet but the Japanese market was very soft in 2023 they had high volumes of beef in cold store to work through but it looks like they may have turned the corner there too and um, yeah so that's that's kind of been a positive and of course China's been another strong market both for sheep meat and and, and increasingly um, focused again towards beef now with some of that um, trade tensions starting to, to dissipate. You know, what we saw um, the last few years when we had abattoirs, export abattoirs that had lost their access, some of those have gained their access back. So that's making China uh, show a little bit of a resurgence in demand as well. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and uh, they've been a big buyer continually all the way through, but that just might tick it up again. And, and the Japanese in the past, I mean, they were like uh, number two or number three on the list in terms of our top buyers. Uh, yeah, for beef, they've actually been number one for a couple of years. And just last year, we saw about August, I think it was, we saw the US um, supersede uh, Japan for that number one spot. And then there was a bit of a tussle between Japan and China for second place. Um, through the end of last year and and just just to that last little bit of December the Japanese um, increase in demand there just was enough to get them over the line so they 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 just took the mantle of second place of China by 0.1 of a percent in terms of market share so it was a a very tight race for second place. Mm, I mean I guess the thing is that they're all competing too in terms of I mean that's got to be a good thing for price for our livestock producers. Absolutely And and part of the reason too Michael is that we had some quite low pricing when we were down at those troughs yeah. last year and compared to the international price, particularly when you compared our beef pricing to the American price because the American uh, market was going through their fourth year of herd liquidation. So their pricing for cattle had gone to record high levels and ours at the time 
was that you know in the doldrums. So the spread or the difference in price between our our, our beef cattle here and American beef cattle was at the widest it's ever been, um, indicating that we were very competitive. And and that's part of the turnaround in that U.S. market and and certainly part of the turnaround in places like Japan, China, South Korea, because in those other three markets, those Asian markets, the, the, our biggest competitor is pretty much the US. So with the US um, you know, tight with supply and, and, and very uncompetitive pricing, it, it puts the focus back on the Australian beef producer. Matt Dalgleish, Director of Episode 3.net with Michael Condon. Seven to one. Well, those turnaround in livestock prices on the East Coast has some farmers pretty happy about that, saying that they've doubled their money. The Eastern States Young Cattle Indicator is up around 650 cents a kilogram, still well below the record set in 2022 but 300 cents higher than it was just a couple of months ago. Emily Doak was at the Wagga Wagga cattle sale yesterday. There were 4,600 head of cattle yarded at Wagga Wagga yesterday, up by 200 after a hot, dry week, and as producers move to take advantage of the rising trend in prices. Overlooking the selling ring, Agent Isaac Hill from Wagga Regional Livestock says there was strong competition amongst buyers. There's a supply issue north of us. Uh, Typically where that cyclone has gone through Queensland has probably restricted a few export cattle. So then they've had a few of those northern buyers have come further south. The feedlots are back in a full action since Christmas, trying to refill feedlots, which they've had trouble doing to, to this point. So prices are up. What about the condition of the cattle that you're coming through? They look to be in pretty good nick after some good summer rain in this part of the world. Yeah, definitely. So most of the cattle that we're seeing here have had feed now for 12 months. We haven't really had a dry spell. We had a dry September, but there has been no feed lacking all the way through. So most cattle here, their average weight for January would be 100 kilos heavier than where we were probably in previous Januaries. And that's just on back-to-back pretty handy seasons. So we're seeing plenty of weight come through at the moment. How significant is it, do you think, to see this rising trend in the market over the past few weeks? I think it's significant. Um, we're not sure whether it's going to be long-lived or, or a relative short time, but what, we've come from such a very low base. From all reports and everyone you talk to, the market got over-corrected last year and, and ended up being too cheap. So we're probably seeing a spin-off from that that makes this look like a dramatic rise. This could be the new norm, but, but all we know is that it's a lot better now than where we were for pretty much the whole of last year. The National Livestock Reporting Service says feeder cattle were up by 15 to 25 cents a kilo in Wonky yesterday and heavy export cattle were up to 30 cents dearer. It certainly put a smile on the face of producers. Yes, yeah, so I've, I've, got, I've got cattle here today. I can see the market's been strong over the last couple of weeks and I'm just going to yeah, kind of capitalise on the high prices. Um, me and my partner um, bought cattle back in sort of you know, September, October when the price was really low and um, yeah, we've just watched it gain in price um, over the last, you know, couple of months and we had lots of feed, you know, end of spring and um, we also a couple of crops up in Tumut. Yeah, we've really capitalised and, you know, over doubled our money. It's Gary Armstrong, I'm from Mara. Uh, I've got some cattle and polled off sheep sub. And uh, what are you doing here at the sale yard today? Buying, selling, just looking? Uh, selling today. We've got uh, 20 cattle in again, 10 steers and uh, 10 heifers. 
the last couple of weeks. It's been getting a little bit dearer each week, so hopefully the tail will be the same. Uh, Steve Condell, I'm a livestock agent in Newtune Wagga. I'm just uh, down to the 20k's north here of Wagga. Nothing brings out numbers like good prices, and after the lows that we saw in the last three or four months that um, people now can see light at the end of the tunnel and say, well, I can get a return on my cattle now. And, and it's a sustainable price. We're making money. People, producers are making money at this rate. And if it stayed around here or grew a little bit, nobody complained. Uh, yeah, a lot of people who toughed it out are being rewarded now with uh, getting a, a good price for their cattle, sustainable price for their cattle. And um, that's what it's about. You've got to ride the highs and lows out here. And we, we're on our way towards getting a bit more of a high. Not as good as it was previously, but that was, that was extremely high. But this is a pretty sustainable market. Steve Condal ending that report from Emily Doak at the Wagga cattle sale. Back home now and about 10,000 sheep and lambs sold at Mushe this morning. So that's down about 2,000 on last week. Terry Birkin, can you run through the details? Hi, Belinda. The drop in numbers this week was mainly due to shorter supplies of store lambs with around the same volumes in heavier lambs and older sheep as last week's sale. Most categories held firm today with the exception of merino store lambs gaining slightly with interest from restockers. Heavy lambs remained equal with one exceptionally neat and tidy pen reaching $158 a head. Most regular buyers were active as well as added interest from the east, mainly bidding on lighter hoggets. Crossbred store lambs remained equal, selling from $30 to $75, while merino store lambs lifted $3 to $4 a kilo, starting from $20 up to $79 with bigger frames. Light lambs were firm, selling from $65 to $108. Trade lambs also equal, returning $85 to $140. And heavy lambs realised $158 a head. Merino weather hoggets ranged from $20 to $58, while merino ewe hoggets returned $25 to $64 for the skin. Crossbred hoggets with weight and finish sold from $35 to $52, and the best young rams reached $82 a head. Bony ewes sold up to $18, while medium ewes returned $15 to $35, and heavy ewes topping out at $50 with a fleece. Slaughter ram values held firm, with most selling from $10 to $40 a head. This has been Terry Bergen for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Terry. We'll end today's hour with a few texts, most of them to do with what to do with that livestock export ship just sitting off the coast of Fremantle and due to dock tomorrow. This from David in the Great Southern. If they need to lighten numbers off this ship, then unload them onto another one and leave them at sea. Uh, Tony in the top end says, I'm sure the RSPCA or Animals Australia will quarantine the sheep and cattle. They have all the ideas and all the answers. Uh, this from Peter, while banning the live sheep exports stays in the ALP party platform, I don't trust the WA state government because it's quietly done little to help producers. Either they're fibbing or their platforms are fib. I'm worried the live cattle trade will be next on the agenda and that will be an unprecedented ecological disaster the entire northern half of Australia. And Annabelle Coppin from Yarry Station, who you heard from earlier as text through too, she says it's very poor leadership from the federal government. Why did they send it back? Why didn't they instruct the ship to go around Africa instead? And they would have been there by now. The importer, I'm sure, would have had a very good plan for this to happen. They would be desperate for that food in their country at the moment. Thanks for that, Annabelle. On the ABC, right across WA News Time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.